Uh, welcome to the check drop. It's today is June 29th, and I have a very special guest here. And uh, you know, I'm gonna give her a brief bio here. She has an amazing book called Music to My Years. Uh, she is the host of the To Be Continued podcast. She is the first Latina to create, write, and star in a network sitcom named Cristela for ABC. And she's also the first Latina to star in a Disney Pixar movie, uh, The Cars 3, vo voicing Cruz Ramirez. And she currently has a Netflix one-hour special, I believe still on, uh, called Lower Classy. Please welcome to the podcast, Cristela Alonzo. Hello, Cristela. What's up, Chuck? That's a mouthful, actually. <laughs> can you do less shit in your life so I can... <laughs> So I can bring you on easier. I'm like hearing you. I'm like, I did do that. Look at me doing that. I kind of, I was hoping that you would mention that, that I really did well in NACA, but whatever. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> we will absolutely get to all the things. Um, first off, tell me how you're doing. Tell the world how you're doing. How are you doing? <laughs> okay, just set this up before we uh, we chatted before going live. Uh, Christella said she's been flipping everything around because her life is going so great and she doesn't want to bring down anybody else. It sounds awful. I know. Well, here's the thing. I've been doing really well. Now, uh, I'm doing as well as can be expected, right? Now, now I've been telling people that uh, I'm a homebody by nature. And I grew up in the 80s. I grew up with latchkey kids, so I'm really used to being alone like this. So this isn't new to me. So it's you know like a I mean? flashback. Yeah, to me, it's just like now I do have access to liquor. You know, <laughs> it's a latchkey kid with a drinking problem. Well, you might have had access before, but now it's legal. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you didn't know? have to steal it. But also what's interesting is that I, I'm the kind of person that prepares for the worst. So I was expecting to really not be doing well right now. So I think in a weird way, the fact that it doesn't match what my expectations were initially uh, makes me happy. Right. All right. So what were your expectations? Oh, babe. I mean, I grew up in South Texas. We had hurricane season. Like, I was doomsday prepping, like, at the beginning. Because like, we had no idea. Like, this is the thing, right? I went to the grocery store when everybody was stocking up on food and I went with the thinking like, Oh my God, everything I want is going to be just gone. Right. Well, it turns out everything was available. Now I went in with the thinking I grew up on food stamps, so I know how to stretch a dollar. So I went in thinking rice, beans, you know, um, stock up on those, make sure tuna that everything that we would, usually get for hurricane season or just at the beginning of the month when we got food stamps. And I remember going to the grocery store and seeing everything was there. Everything I wanted was there. The only thing that was missing, the first thing I noticed that was missing, all the soda. Okay. Like, all the soda was gone. All the chips were gone. And I'm like, you're not having a Super Bowl party. We're having a pandemic. Like, you know, and then I realized none of these people, like, none of these people knew what it was like growing up poor. Like that's right. how, and so they're, you know, like when they started having the toilet paper shortage, I was just thinking like, out of all things, that's what you're thinking? That's what you think is like top priority? Like, ooh, 
Let me teach you a couple lessons. So I was expecting extreme. I was, because again, I didn't, none of us knew what it was. Right. None of us knew how it was affected. I mean, and we basically got grounded by the world. Like we've been grounded, you know? Some people like that. Yeah. yeah, Look, I mean, I don't mind it. I mean, I get, I'm lucky enough to work from home kind of, you know, except for the stand-up part of it. But, you know, other than that, I mean, I think I'm always that person, expect the worst. So when it doesn't happen, you know, you can have something to look, to be happy about. Well, do you feel that you're a little privileged in that aspect of all those things, basically running down your your bio ahead of time, Mm -hmm. you've kind of paved that way. So you got a nice nest egg. Oh, yeah. Well, look, hey, I mean, this is actually a guilt that I dealt with right at the beginning of the pandemic. This is the first crisis I've ever been able to like not have to worry about. So it actually felt weird that I didn't have to worry and panic as I would have previously. So that was actually a really big guilt that I struggled with. I'm doing therapy online right now. We do it via Zoom. And that was one of the things I was telling my therapist is that I feel guilty that I'm actually capable of not having to worry so much about it. And she has to remind me, but yeah, your entire life hasn't been like that. Right. It's okay. You've got comedy survival guilt. (laughs) 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 exactly exactly i mean look that's rare to have you know like so i get it yeah i do do. yeah well it's uh yeah i do feel bad for all the comedians that was the first step i was like oh i mean because i've got a nest egg and you and i know that a lot of comedians do not and they're living week to week and that one-time stimulus check's not helping, and eventually the uh, unemployment's going to run out. So that's kind of where my mind is. Like, eventually, we're at that point where it's probably coming to an end. I don't know how long you can get unemployment. Um, right. I haven't done the research, but I assume it's like twelve to sixteen weeks. And it, well, you know, it's also weird with comics too. It's that it's such a it's such an unconventional job where you really it's inconsistent as hell. And sometimes it doesn't even mean that you're not funny. It just means that sometimes, you know, like, like with colleges, you have to be a certain, being a certain type helps, you know, and, or, you know, just there's so much, you know, summer is always slow for comics anyway. So, you know, that's one thing that I think about is that, well, there's some of us that we're used to not really working much in the summer anyway, not that it, not that that helps or anything. Right. But... Summer money from the clubs. Where they, <laughs> hey, we're going to give you summer money. I... Wait, I'm going to give you my summer jokes then. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, we do summer money because you're wearing shorts instead of jeans. That's half pants. You know, so, so, you know um, I feel bad, though, because I know that at the beginning. So my book came out in October of last year, 2019, and I did a 40 city tour in three months. To promote, you know, so I had already planned on having this time off for myself. And how did that tour work? Did you work comedy in the towns at night and do book signings during the day? No, I actually did an hour. I did my an hour stand up and then I did a full book signing after the show. Afterwards. Okay. So you weren't actually visiting uh, stores. No, and actually I so I had the bookstores come to me. So I actually had the bookstores um, sell the books for me at the show so that they could get the money for it. 
and I would just sign the books. But a lot of comics, when they do that, they'll include the book and the ticket price. And I didn't want to do that because sometimes, look, let's face it, going to stand up sometimes can be pricey if you're doing a theater. Right. And some people can't read. (laughs) (laughs) They can listen to your jokes. Like, well, she had me at her jokes. Reading books. And uh, the person that created audiobooks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, so. but it was that weird thing where um, I would do an hour. And that was another thing. I know that a lot of comics were, uh, you know, I knew that not a lot. But some of the comics that were touring with books, they would do shorter sets. And they would say that it was to make sure they had enough time to sign everybody's book. So it was this thing where... Um, I wanted to give everybody a full show because I minimum an hour. So I would just tell everybody, if you want me to sign the book, I'll stay after the show for as long as it takes. And I will sign everybody's book and meet everybody. And it became, it became the norm that my, my meet and greets would last way longer than the show, you know, and people would stay, but it was this thing where I had also just, planned it like that where it was going to be a very condensed three months and then i was going to take a break doesn't that seem so foreign now with the 2020 covid like meeting people for hours shaking hands oh that's one thing that i realized i feel really weird about because i do meet and greets after every show i always have even when i was doing colleges i would do meet and greets so, you know, I would do meet and greets after every show just to thank people for showing up. Because to me, I've always treated stand-up as this thing I love. But it's also, to me, such a, um, in a weird way, such a, a privileged job for someone that came from my family where we're very blue-collar. You know, yeah. we were raised in thinking that if a job had to hurt, it had to be physical. You know, so to get paid to write your thoughts in a funny way just seemed so foreign to me that, I always wanted to thank everybody after every show for showing up. Did and, your family frown upon that? Like when you chose this line of work? Oh, later? no. Like no. she's not getting her hands dirty. I mean, you know, my family, uh, it was like I had told them a made up word. They didn't understand what I wanted to be. You know, like they kind of understood the concept of stand up, but the fact that that one of us wanted to go do it just seemed, it was kind of like, well, go. Like, we'll see, go, you know? So that was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of that, you know? So for me, I've been doing stand-up for 15 years now in LA. God, I've been doing stand-up. Oh man, I've been doing stand-up for like 17 years. So for me- You look surprised. I, I, well, cause you don't do that math. So then when you right. start doing the math, you're like, oh my God, like, this is no longer a hobby. Uh, <laughs> it's like you're stuck what would you do otherwise are oh. you at that point have you have you ever thought that even yeah. at the level you are now yeah would you think well now i've got a little nest egg i got some disney money um what's what's plan b there, there is no plan b like no. this is it till the end There's nothing like a <laughs> pandemic to put you right in that place too when you start thinking well shit maybe maybe i need a plan b <laughs> you know for me it was always and I think that also what helped me is that when people, uh, when people asked, some people ask me like, how do you know that you made it? 
And I always say um, it was the moment that I could pay my bills without having to do a job that it, that wasn't what I loved to do. And so for me, I always thought that I succeeded way early in my life, you know, because even my expenses have still kind of remained the same that I've always had where I remember the first, you know, when I had my TV show, my accountant was very surprised that I still spent the same amount of money, you know? And it was this thing where for me, I was just able, like for me, a big deal, I'm not kidding, was when I could uh, do auto pay on my bill. So you didn't have to worry about like that surprise yeah, because when, when you're doing like when you're doing the when you're when you're driving around going from gig to gig and stuff like you start losing track of days and time and stuff and I would I was like wonderful at forgetting to pay my bills just because I lost track of the days so when I could finally do auto pay I was like oh look at me that's big time I was like okay Daddy Warbucks I got you <laughs> I remember I was trying to think some of the first memories of you and i do have one story you may or may not remember you might not even remember it was me but a club that i was booking in idaho bounced a check on you yes i think about that club all the time i don't know if you knew it was through me because i know it was through your agent Uh, and and i remember your agent uh Stu at the time called me (laughs) and he was he was like man like i'm i'm in trouble i need this money like she needs it like She's got auto draft going. <laughs> During that gig, I wasn't even. I was just trying to stay alive. No, I remember, and I remember, I overnighted the check to either you or him to cover that, and I dealt with a shady club owner on my own. But that was my first uh, story that I remember of you. And then, then I met you many times on the NACA college circuit and such. And I want you to tell the story because it's an amazing story. It was a time in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm based. Yeah. And uh, you had the showcase of your life. It was one of those right time, right place, everything. <laughs> and you wrote a blog about it that was just one of the coolest blogs that I've ever written or that I've ever read. And it was you telling this story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was uh, – so my college agent was Stu. And uh, we I had been with him for a while. I didn't know how NACA worked. And at that point, I had just been doing NACA for a year and a half. I was doing the regionals. And I remember I had already gone to a NACA Nationals in Boston. That was the year that everybody went and fell in love with Snooki. You remember that? Like, Snooki was at NACA, and she was charging, like, $20,000 to get interviewed for, like, an hour at your campus. It was insane. And all of us that that weren't Snooki were just like, buy hopes and dreams and run like it was just so insane right Right. so after that that was my first NACA Nationals experience and I thought never again because that was like it was just like and and Snooki was right like almost catty corner to me which was great so um probably right after your showcase too and she just didn't do anything she was just there getting (laughs) photos of herself it's insane but um it was uh that year I was so broke because I was still playing catch up. I was I was consistently working with colleges, but you know, paying commission and then paying travel and everything. And you know, that's the thing about NACA is that a lot of times when you're starting out, you end up if you don't get um, the routing to work, you end up going to these random places where you just have to go because that's the job, you know. So I was really playing catch up, 
And at this point, everything had gone wrong. My boyfriend at the time and I, we were living together and uh, I was telling him, like, we were so broke. He had just gotten laid off from his job. Um, we didn't know what to do. And I remember uh, we were actually uh, driving down. We were on a road trip to Texas, from Los Angeles to Texas. We were going to go visit family. We both had family in Dallas. And we re I remember... Um, we drove because we couldn't afford to fly there. And I was telling him on the drive, um, basically, I, I think I think I'm I think we have to be done with LA. Like it I I don't see it happening. It's too hard. And um Had you ever thought of quitting comedy during that time or, or That was the moment actually. Like that was the moment where I actually that was the final when I said leave LA, I meant like go work at an office in you know, in Texas. Like you know, right that was it that was last resort i was done and i remember we we stopped at the gas somewhere in like arizona new mexico and i get a call and it's my then agent Stu. um i had just found out that i had made um naca nationals in charlotte and i wrote back to him right back right away and i said oh i can't do it forget that <laughs> you know Which agents love to hear after they've gone through the process of six months of submitting all their talent, and you only are allotted so many showcasing <laughs> oh, yeah. spots, I, I, I like I didn't know. They love that stuff, and it was an MC spot, <laughs> so you know, like which I kind of liked. I never got the spotlight high. I always okay. like that was the I had an MC spot, um, so I emailed him. I had no money. We had no money. We were so poor. And uh, he called me right when I was at that gas station. And he said, I really think you should reconsider and do NACA Nationals. I told him, Stu, I don't have the money. I don't have the money for a plane ticket. I don't have the money for the registration. I don't have money. Yeah, the showcase fee is like $1,000, too, if you, yeah. if you didn't know that out there. So. Yeah, so it, I mean, you're kind of, like, you're really letting it ride. Yeah, you're like two grand in. You figure yeah. between your showcase fee, travel, hotel, Absolutely. et cetera. Yeah. So it was, uh, so. Beer um, money <laughs> with Chuck <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> so then, uh, so then um, I remember I was telling my boyfriend, after I hung up with him, I'm like, still thinks I should go to NACA Nationals. And we talked about it. And then finally, and I was not going to go. And Steve was like, screw it. We got to go. You're going to go. Let, let's do it. Let's let it ride. If we're going to move to Texas, like, let's just, let's go all the way. So I was like, okay. Well, I had already been doing college gigs. So I used all my points to like to get uh, a ticket on U.S. Airways um, because Charlotte was the hub for them, and then it was uh, and so I got the flight free. I used uh, points from my La Quinta <laughs> account <laughs> to get a free room that was. Of not course, even... you stay at La Quintas. <laughs> <laughs> I do it for the culture. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, I could afford a free room that was right by the airport, which was nowhere near the convention center where, where it was being done. All those rooms are so expensive because it's downtown too. Right. And they right. know they got you. So they just charge more. Right. So um, I rented a car. I got a free flight, like the whole thing. Didn't have money for food. Didn't do anything much. And um, I went to Charlotte and 
my whole thing is I just wanted nine. We had made done the math and my boyfriend and I had decided nine colleges is all I need to get me through a year. You know, and that's like bare minimum, like bare bones. Right. If I got nine schools, I could pay my rent, we could pay utilities, we could maybe stay in LA for a year. So I went in there thinking, nine, let's hit nine. And the day of my showcase, I remember I went out and I hosted it and it was packed. Uh, I don't know what it was, but it just felt weird. You know, it felt like a weird moment because everybody was- They heard you were coming. Huh? They heard you were coming. (laughs) (laughs) No one knew who I was. So it was this thing where the audience was, they were just so into it that I could tell. And I remember, Chuck, I remember I was wearing this shirt that I got on clearance at Target and this sweater that I also came from Target clearance. I was wearing the only pair of jeans I owned. Like it was just, that's all I had. I remember that. And I was wearing like these green glasses I still have. Now you had done other showcases at NACA. So did you mix up the material or do the same stuff at that? You know, actually I had done uh, different stuff because at that point I had already booked colleges. I booked a lot in the, what's the name of the, uh, is it Northern Plains? The one that covers uh, Wisconsin? Yeah. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. The the year before, I mean, that's actually, that region saved my life. Yeah. That's a really good region. They do a lot of business. I did so many schools in Wisconsin, but I swear schools had schools in them. It was insane how many schools are in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, so, but I had already, I was using the college gigs as stage time to get in, to build an hour, you know? So I was literally writing stuff and I would switch things out and you learn a lot of stuff just from doing college shows. You learn what, what works for me. I'm not a dirty comic. So for me, it was really good in, just tightening up my jokes and making sure that they would hit everyone. That's kind of how I saw it. So yeah, I showcased with some of the same stuff, but also uh, some new stuff, but not a lot of new stuff because you don't want to try new stuff in such a high, yeah. you know? Or crowd work. <laughs> crowd work doesn't work well. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and that was another thing. I don't do crowd work. So it was this thing where I'm because for me, crowd work's like, well, I'm sorry, I wrote these jokes. You're not part of my show. So, <laughs> so um, I showcased. And then after the show, I just said, uh, uh, thank you for coming, everybody. My name's Crystal Alonzo. I'm with blah, 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 booth, blah, blah, blah. I'll be at the marketplace, da, da, da. And, um, you know, you, you have a couple minutes to get to the marketplace, right? And, uh the marketplace for those that you don't know, like that's where all the people at NECA, all the performers, the artists, they stand there just waiting to see if people want to book you. And yeah, think of it, think of a trade show that you would just kind of hop from booth to booth. And that's yes. where so we sit there. And, and they get like an to, hour, right? They get an hour. Like, what's that? Do they get an hour per marketplace? An hour to an hour and a half typically. So, you know, it's this thing where, so, but also imagine I, like, if Chuck was my agent, I would be standing next to Chuck and we're just like, book me. <laughs> you know I mean? just stand there, wave at people yeah. going by. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable where they just walk by. It was very mean to They're like, hey, great showcase. And you're like, oh, I'm on tomorrow. Oh, sorry. I confused you with somebody else. <laughs> if anybody uh, has watched HBO Cr- Crashing, 
Do you watch that? Have you ever watched that, Crystal? Yeah. All right. So um, there's an episode in season two, and it's called NACA. I don't know if you're aware of that. Oh, no. And it's 90% accurate. Pete Holmes, because he came up through those ranks. Yeah, yeah. If you go back and watch that, it's seriously 90% like spot on. Oh, Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I remember going to the marketplace hoping for my nine. And I, I remember walking to my booth. Like I had to go to the bathroom, so I was kind of like lagging with stew. And I remember there was a line for people. And like Snooky's like, back. That's the first thing I thought. That's the first thing I'm like, oh, who the hell? Who the hell was the Snooky this year? Like, who was it? And then I saw uh, Andy Grammer was there. Oh, nice. I was like, oh, well, it's for Andy Grammer or something like that. You know, it's like I don't know. And I get to the booth, and it turns out that they're there for me. Like this line was for me. And you still look excited now. <laughs> like, like you're still in dismay. Because honestly, Chuck, I couldn't believe it. Like I want nine and I don't know what's going on. Like I was so broke at that point that while it was happening, I remember thinking that I couldn't process it. I couldn't understand that people were there to try to book me. And you could tell like, it caught Stu by surprise. Like he was filling out. Like, Most things <laughs> catch Stu by surprise. He was getting warm syntologies and stuff. And uh, I couldn't understand what that meant because, again, I know how it works. So I wasn't, it was hard to believe that, that what was happening was good was like right. in that moment or like just crazy when you have that first good one like that it's it is kind of shocking because you're like wait is this real yeah and then the first so the, the marketplace closed and then uh not everybody got to meet me and then Stu said hey do you mind hanging out for the next marketplace and was, was it like, the yeah. next day or the no, same day? During the day, same day. I think we had three on that day or something like okay. that. I remember ending up. Because sometimes I, it's if you showcase at night and there's only one more and then. Yeah, no, mine was during the day. Okay. So like I remember it was kind of like, it's at that, it was actually at that prime spot where it was kind of afternoon. And at that point, I don't know if they still do, but remember when NBC stand-up diversity used to have the big thing or like that was right. like, whatever. So then um, I stayed for the next two marketplaces and I still had lines of people that were like students and you know everybody that they were trying to book me and that's when Stu said you know I think you need I think you need to stay another day and do the marketplace tomorrow and I told him I'm out of points yeah Jack, I was like, Stu, I can't. It's like $150 to change the flight. I don't have $150. And he was like, I'm saying you're doing really well. You, like, you need to, like, you need to stay. And I was telling him, like, basically, I'm like, you might as well tell me it's $5,000. Like, it's 150 Like, when you don't right. have it, you don't have it. So I remember I called my boyfriend at the time. I'm like, so Stu thinks da da da, and then he's like, "Well, how's it going?" I'm like, "I think it's going good," because at this point, I still like I'm not understanding what's going on, Chuck. Like, Stu's uh, got me handcuffed to the booth. I guess it's going okay. <laughs> I had no idea, and uh, my boyfriend was like, "Man, 
He's like, all right, let's, let's, let's find, let's, yeah, let's, let's get the money. Like you're going to do this. And, and, and he called the airline and changed the flight for me, which meant that I had to, um, the next day I had no hotel room, <laughs> I had no nothing, you know, whatever. So, um, that night, I remember that night, uh, after the last marketplace, I bumped into Jay Chris Newberg and Jay Chris was going to the airport because he was, we were both broke. So he was leaving, he was going to leave the next day, but he was going to sleep at the airport. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so I bumped into him and I was like, you want to go split something at the Waffle House? <laughs> a half a waffle. And we went to Waffle House. And like I think we split like breakfast at night, you know. Oh my goodness. And I took him over to uh because my hotel room was near the airport. I'm like, you know what, you can just hang out in my room if you like, you know, I'll drop you off at the airport like when it's you know, when it's time for your flight. We both knew each other from LA and stuff, and you know, it was just like nice to see a familiar face. And we're both so broke that we were just talking about being so broke right and uh i took him to the airport um and then the next day the next day chuck i remember going in just to go to the marketplace and people are high-fiving me as i'm making my way to the market did you wear the same shirt <laughs> i did because a lot, I... a lot of times seriously you people would look at you and go, oh, I didn't recognize you weren't wearing your purple shirt or whatever from on stage. That's all I had packed. Yeah. <laughs> so I wore the same outfit. <laughs> so like, like they high-fived me. Some people took pictures and it was so weird. And you know how they have those boards with the num with like the name and like the numbers or something? Right. The black board. I had never seen that board before. Like, here's the thing. Stu never pointed out. I was like, eh, don't bother going to look. Student never told me about it. Like, you I might not have known. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is the anti Stu podcast. <laughs> no, we love Stu. Oh, we do love Stu. <laughs> so it was this thing where um, I he saw the he uh, I bumped into him like we met up right there. He just happened to be there because people were telling me to go look at the board, and I didn't know what the hell that board meant. So I just saw all these names with numbers and stuff, and I couldn't even find. I got overwhelmed with how many people were there. Like just so, on yeah. The if you're listening at home, the uh, the board is literally they show right for everyone to see who's doing well and who isn't. You, if you have a showcase that you have twenty on there, it lists every school and the dates and such. Um, if you don't have any, it shows a big goose egg. It has your name up there, and that's it. And every, that hurts. And every agent has had both sides of that coin, and it is what it is. It's part of the gig. But uh, so, yeah. you, so you went to the board. I went to the board. Uh, Stu was there looking it up, and he was so happy. And I was like, "What's going on?" And I want to say that my number was a like 131, and it was like this thing where. Uh, he just told me the number. I'm like, okay. Like, I had no idea what that was. I had no idea what it meant. Nothing. And, uh, but you knew it was more than nine. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what that was for because no one had still explained the, the board for me. Chris Schuller just said, oh. Stu doesn't know what blocking is still. 
<laughs> it's truth. It's facts. <laughs> Hi, Chris. <laughs> like, it was this thing where, it was this thing where, like, all I knew was the number was 131. It was like 130, 131. But I didn't know what that meant. And he, he said the number to me like I would have known. And I wanted to be like, you've never told, you've never taught me this. I don't know what this number is. And uh, he like had to explain it to me that those were like the considered like the forms, blah, 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 whatever. I couldn't understand it. I, Chuck, I, I, I could not understand it. And even Every other agent, though, in the room was like, oh, he's got 130 something. <laughs> <laughs> it was this thing where, um, and Stu tried to, uh, I had told Stu that I needed nine. And he had said that I had gotten the nine. And I was happy that I had gotten the nine. I didn't know that I got nine plus. 120-something, yeah. Yeah, so I was like... So then you had to go perform at 120-plus colleges. They probably all didn't pan out because sometimes when you get that many forms, um, they cancel each other out. It's people both want, say, April 12th, and and it does happen that way. But no, so no, I assume um, you probably still still did 80 to 100 colleges. Yeah, minimum. Yeah. I, I did, had very few that canceled, like, that, that canceled each other out. Very, very few. And nice. I, I had shows where I was doing two shows a night with a noon or an evening show, you know? And let me tell you, Chuck, when I finally figured out what it was, I remember calling my boyfriend at that time at NACA because that convention center was so big. I found a hallway with, where I was like by myself. And I remember I told him that I had booked 130 schools and we, had, we started talking about my rate. And we were all, we were just so quiet and we both started bawling. Like we just started crying. Like we that's cried awesome. forever. And uh, that's that's cry. yeah, but that's why I'm always very, very, uh, I always talk very, like I always speak uh, very highly of NACA. I've always spoken very highly of like the college gigs, everything, but like just doing that because. It gave NACA, you a springboard. Without Nack, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't be where I'm at. Like, well, I felt like once you did that, and within the year after doing all those schools, your career just started just skyrocketing so quick. What year was that Nacka? Do you remember? It was uh, 2012. Okay. So, so think about this. So it was 2012. I got. I was doing the college gigs. 2013, I got my first late night set on Conan. Which, by the way, was my five-minute submission to NACA. That was my yes. late night set. So it was, clearly it worked for NACA. It worked for <laughs> so, yeah. So it was like so. Um, I remember uh, the Booker, JP Buck from Conan. He had asked me to just give him a set, and that's the set I had, the NACA set. And he's like, "I love it," and he gave me no notes, and. Which again, I thank NACA for, and then uh, and that's pretty unheard of too in the late night world. Usually, they yeah, have some kind of notes and hey, let's go work this out and change this in the clubs and come I back. Had, I, even to now, I've never gotten a note on any late night sets. Hmm. So it's awesome. like so it's that thing where um, I got Conan, 
I switched agencies. Um, the Conan set got me my development deal for a TV show, which even then I was developing the TV show while I was doing college gigs. So I was actually like, do, I was I was writing my show out while I was doing the hundred plus. College You're waiting gigs. for your uh, your nooner gig at UW Stout. Yeah. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that there was a noon gig that that it was my last nooner gig of my life where it was a noon gig. I had to perform the cafeteria classic scenario. They didn't tell anybody they were going to have a comic, so they just kind of have like this. It's like like a cafetorium. The cafeteria, like the stage part actually has the food on it. Like it was kind of like buffet style where you just kind of go so weird. I don't remember where it was, but it was either like Iowa, Nebraska, somewhere there. And um, they had a school, uh, an elementary school uh, touring the campus that day. So they wanted to make sure all my jokes, they were like, if you have any Disney jokes, this is the time to do it. Oh, we all have Disney jokes. Pre-Disney. <laughs> yeah. <for> <laughs> and then um, there was also another group of veterans like from a nursing home or something that were touring the campus at the same time. And my noon gig was standing in the middle of these food. A cornucopia like, of people and of all ages. Chuck, and let me tell you, I get the mic and I'm doing my, my set for no one that's paying attention to me. And then halfway through my set, the little kids come in and they're getting lunch and they get in line in front of me. <laughs> Like, what the hell is going on? Who's then, that lady up there talking? And then the, the people, the seniors from the nursing home, they get, so it's a crisscross of kids. And, and the, the seniors have no idea what I'm doing. So they just see me on the microphone. And I remember one of them, this little old lady was like, you don't need one. We can hear you. <laughs> After that, I remember telling Sue, I'm never doing a nooner again. But I did a bunch of them. Um yeah, but I worked on, a, I developed the show while I was doing college gigs. And because I did so many college gigs, again, my hour was always um, family friendly. It was personal. Because that's the thing about NACA that I think people don't understand. When I was doing NACA, I realized that a lot of comics that I talked to, they were trying too hard. They were they always tried too hard to get the, the students on their side. It's like... You, you try too hard and that's the, the death of you because then you start trying to find terms and references that will get to the students. You know, it's like they try to think of what musician, what kind of music do these students like? And I'm like, that's the worst thing you can do. Now you're trying to guess what they are. Like the, the students that go to these shows, they're smart. They get it. Like right. you know, if you just sell yourself and become likable, yeah. it'll be transparent. For them to just—that was like the number one thing. That's not not only the college market. That I think that feeds across the board for all all markets of comedy. Absolutely, and I think that's why that's why I learned that in NACA, you know. And that was one of the things where I used NACA as a reference when I was uh, during the show, my my the run of my show. I used NACA a lot because I would always say uh, the networks think that they've done the, this. Um, these like, you know, statistics, this research. I'm like, let me tell you, I've done the research. Like, I had a great show in River Falls, Wisconsin. And let me, you know, and it's not because I was Latina, because like the network's telling me be more Latina, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's because there I spoke about my life. I talked about being in a blue collar family. 
I talk about being Catholic. I talked about it. It was all relatable stuff that they could get. And that was one thing I realized is that it wasn't about what I was, you know, outside. It's really what I lived. And that's when I always, like, after that, people would ask me about NACA. When people found out how many schools I had booked, comics would ask me about, you know, they would ask me for tips and advice all the time. And I would just tell them, like, you just got to, like, find what's universal, about, like, find what's interesting about you. I mean, like, and just speak about it in a, in a way that, that everybody would get. True. Hey, we're going to pivot a bit. I know we, I, we could talk for, like, eight hours, I'm sure. So, uh, but um, totally. I think uh, this is, is J.R. de Guzman, I'm assuming, who that is, comedian. Uh, question, how was your friendship with Gabriel Iglesias, Fluffy? I met Gabriel. You know what's funny is that people don't understand, don't know this. I met Gabriel uh, twenty years ago, I guess, like twenty, maybe almost twenty years ago. I was actually working in the office at the comedy club that he came in to headline at, and I had no dreams or aspirations of being a comic then. And I met him and uh, we've known each other ever since. I mean, look, the thing about him is that uh, he is exactly what he is on stage. You know what I mean? So, I mean, he's a likable guy, lovable, you know. Who is your comedian's comedian? Like people, I always hear people mention um, Brian Regan as being a comedian's comedian. Do you have one that you're like, that's the guy I just, or gal that you um, always refer to? Wanda Sykes. Wanda Sykes. Like for me, I remember seeing Wanda when I was working at the club again, when I was running the office, I remember seeing her live and thinking she was just so, I knew her, like I connected with her style because she was saying things in such a relatable way, but they were smart. They were witty. They said something about the current time that, that we were living in. And to me, it wasn't this, that's a thing. We never got into these, uh, like, I never considered her a female comic. I just considered her a comic, you know? And for me, when I started out doing stand-up in Dallas, I was just, I was the only girl doing it with this whole crowd of guys. So I was always seen as just a comic too, because it was only me, you know? So for me, Wanda's always like, kind of like the go-to where I'm like, if you guys want to know how you can be funny, about something that might not seem funny, go watch Wanda. Gotcha. Are you friends with her now? Yeah, she actually wrote a blurb on my book. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, I, uh, we're we're friends. I've uh, I've always said that if I, uh, if and when, depending on the future, I were to do another stand-up special, she would like she would probably produce it for me. Nice. What do you think is the biggest hurdle of being a woman in stand-up comedy? You know, for me, it's that uh, the questions and interviews always set you up to come off like you're not a comic, you know, and that's what you learn when you do radio, you do TV or something, because it's this thing where everybody always thinks that they have to ask you different questions because you're a woman. Right. And like you just said, referring to Wanda, you don't consider a female com- comic. It's just a comedian, per se. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a weird thing, too, because there's also, you know, uh, for me, once you start asking certain questions, you start realizing, like, you do know that I'm a comedian, though, right? Above everything else. Like, I'm still a comic. Right. Nice. 
Um, let's see. I have another question from a Charlotte comedian, Tara Brown. What is the key of getting booked for a late night show? Tara Brown, I love. Tara Brown, I'm so in love with. I, I do too. Her. I love her very much. I do a monthly a uh, monthly brewery gig pre COVID that I would book here in Concord, North Carolina. You were going to do it one time when you were you were in town, yeah, but it yeah. just didn't work out. But uh, um, I used Tara there. And Tara is great. Amazing. So you know, for me, like the thing, the way to get a to help you get a late night set. This is something that um, I actually learned really early on. You have to have five minutes of clean material. You have to work clean. Now you don't have to work clean. Period. If that's not your style. You know, there's a lot of comics that, that are not clean, that are hilarious. But you also have to think, I'm going to show, it's going to be broadcast on air, on TV. So you have to have five tight minutes. I always say that um, your five minutes should be your greatest hits of what you have right now. Because that's the first time that people see you. And also, something that I think comics take for granted is that in their submission tape or even when they get it and they go shoot some comics don't show how they feel while they're taping it you know both submission or set so what do i mean by that calling it in yeah like for me for me like with conan i had wanted a late night spot so much it took me 10 years to get a late night spot and i remember when I was submitting for it, I was so excited. And when I got it, right before they opened the curtains, like I had this moment where I thought, I can't believe I'm doing a late night spot. So when they opened the curtains, I came out and I was so excited that the audience could tell I was excited. And here's the thing, I've always said too, when you're doing, when you're, when you're doing late night or when you feel like you're gonna do late night, it's not about the people at home. It's about the people in the room. So you have to entertain those people because what they're seeing at home, that's just a reaction of what you're doing in the room. So, you know, it, it, people do not understand that. So they, a lot of comics, I've seen a lot of comics come out like like it's no big deal that they're on TV. You're on TV, you're on late night. Like you, you are given the power to control this show right now for the next five minutes. Like if you're excited, show them you're excited because the audience wants you to win. But I feel some people just have it. Like you have it. You have that star quality. You have that that likability. Once you come out, I mean, you can see it right here. Like we're doing the live stream, and you've got it. You just bubbly smile, smiles always. Yeah. And so that helps, obviously. It does. You can't yeah. teach all that, though. No, you can't teach it. But you know, I think that one thing that you can learn is to trust that you're enough. Because that's another thing that I think we do as comics, especially when, you know, look, years ago, uh, Mitch Hedberg is amazing, right? You can still listen to Mitch Hedberg. Great. It's when timeless. Passed, like when he passed away, uh, fans of Mitch Hedberg started doing their own impression of Mitch Hedberg. Right. You know, and it, they didn't even realize they were doing impressions of Mitch Hedberg. You know, that's what happens to a lot of comics, too, is that the comics that we like, to so many, they start emulating them without even realizing that they're emulating them. So, you know, when I say the like the the energy and everything, I always say like trust yourself and trust what you're feeling and go with that. And don't try to pretend that you're something that you're not because that's 
part of the journey. The people that end up following you, they like to see that growth. They like to be along with you on the journey. You don't have to be absolutely perfect all the time. In fact, people like it when you're not. Right. Now, your main clubs, I see you on the on Instagram that you do comedy magic and Hermosa. And I believe you do the comedy store quite a bit too. No, no, no. I do the Hollywood improv. I did the comedy magic in Hermosa is my home club. Okay. That one I do the most out of all of them. Locally, I'll do uh, Hollywood improv. And then uh, when I can, because of traffic, I'll do the ice house in Pasadena. Okay. I don't know the whole scene so much being in Charlotte. I've kind of always liked being in uh, my little world, not in the New York, LA, uh, uh, comedy world. Um, what what kind of, I mean, I see, it looks like, per, from my perspective, is like the clicks of comedy. So, so I see all the podcast guys that are doing really well, but now there's a little bit of, uh, you know, news with Chris D'Elia and yeah. such. I mean, are you a part of any of those clicks? Do you have no. any? You know, what's funny is that I actually, this is what's interesting about that. Is that a boys that, club, per se? It's uh it is mostly a boys club. It's also, um, they all have very, very similar styles of comedy. So it makes sense that uh, the certain cliques are cliques. That's kind of how they're formed because they're all kind of, you know, like for like specifically speaking in that group, they're all very broy. You know, like they're the kind of, you know, you know how Will Ferrell kind of had that energy where he could just play the adult college kid for the rest of his life and people would be okay with it. Right. That's it. You know, and what you realize real quick is that all the clubs had different vibes to them. Now, the reason I go to Comedy Magic, Formosa Beach, the most is because it's the hardest to get into. You can't be vulgar there. Um, they treat you really nice. The The club will feed you. They pay you for spots that like, you know, like they're really good with that. But also um, there is a certain kind of comic that they like you know so usually and by that i mean they want to see that you're original and that you're yourself you know because sometimes i'll go and ray romano's there or seinfeld will be there or you, you know like people drop in and look they drop in at other clubs too but there does leno still do every sunday every sunday i does, do I uh, he always did that before his monologue work on his monologue for the week because i didn't know if i do I do New Year's Eve with him at Hermosa. So it's okay. like, it's like Leno, me and like, uh, uh, Jimmy Brogan and like whoever else, one more person that they have or something. So like, that's like my New Year's thing. Um, Hollywood improv for me, I live 10 minutes away from it. So for me, I, I can go do a set and then be back. Look, here's the thing. Comedy store. Don't go there. I've never liked the vibe, never liked the energy. When I moved to LA, I tried to do the, co- the the comedy store open mic because it was one of the clubs that people that you heard about. But for me, never liked the vibe, never liked the energy, so I stayed away from it. And I knew that meant that I would have to try harder somewhere else, you know. But I didn't like the vibe, so I didn't go there. It was just this thing where I'm like, look, stand up is already hard. So right. why make it harder by surrounding yourself in an environment that you don't want to be around? Absolutely. It, you know, I mean, it's like, I, no, you know, so I never went to, uh, I never went to the comedy store, even the laugh factory. I do it every now and then, but very, very rarely because back in the day when I was really coming up, that's when uh, that was like Dane Cook's home. 
And that was kind of like a, it was kind of like a tourist trap. It was just very Hollywood scene, everything. And for me, I like going to clubs where I feel like I can work out material, you know, and not where I have to give this like performance. Dane Cook in his heyday, I don't want to be on the same show as Dane Cook with my little notebook trying. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. you know, so I always like, I especially about, if you follow him, you're like, everybody's yeah, walking yeah. out. Like, what's yeah. going on? You know, it's this thing where like, um, I go to the ice house in Pasadena because you can work out bits there. Like you can try out, you can go to the note like go to your notebook. Hermosa beach, same thing. Hermosa beach. I used to polish. So when I'm polishing a set to tape, I go to Hermosa beach because then they allow me the environment that's more, that's closest to like a TV audience, you know? And, but in Hollywood improv, you get a mishmash. I've never hung out at the clubs. Now, people always said, you got to network, you got to do this. Maybe I didn't do it. Yeah, know? I feel like you sidetracked all that on with your representation, getting you all these great deals and such that you didn't have to just do that. And well, I, you know, and also I was Latina, so and still am. But it was the same when I, <laughs> <laughs> when I was. Uh, Things change, twenty twenty. You never know. And uh, you know, uh, it, caution. Some people way. change genders. You're changing your, your nationality. Where um, I when I got here, this is I, in regards to the, all the accusations and everything. Uh, I'm not saying that I've never had any experiences like that. I have not surrounded myself with the people that have been involved in it, you know, uh, recently or been accused of recently. But I will say that when I came to Los Angeles, remember earlier I said in Dallas, I was just a comic. In L.A., I was a Mexican comic. Mm. So the clubs wouldn't book me. There was a book. There was a club booker back in the day that told me that I couldn't play the club. I was a Latino comic, so I had to go do the Latino rooms. What, and then, what were those rooms? Like, are they notable rooms? Where? Restaurants and bars. Okay. So, like, so there was not uh, an open arm community like any club in LA that would take in Latina? No, rooms. like Laugh Factory would have their Latino nights on Monday, but you had to. Unless you were Carlos Mencia. Exactly. You know what I mean? Same thing with like. Um, there was a, a Latino show at the improv called Refried Fridays that I couldn't stand because the booker thought he was like Jesus Christ in person. So he was, you know, the fact that you could get booked on it, he's like, remember that. Like, it was just so insane, like gatekeeper. And it's just like, okay, whatever. Um, but it was this thing where, so we didn't have opportunities. So I went away and did all these rooms away from everyone. So I didn't have this experience. When I got my show, People were surprised. There were people that the comics that were surprised I was a comic. Yeah, who is this? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I'm like, go to NACA. They know me in NACA. <laughs> in River Falls. Yeah. I'm like, huge in River Falls. <laughs> now, I mentioned uh, Carlos, uh, which triggered me that I remember that you used to work with him at one time, did some things. I opened for him. Like, you opened, I opened for him for like right. two years. And that did not end well, correctly? No, I actually oh, left did. him in. Uh, in 2008, I was on a national tour with him. Uh, I started working with him in 2005. Um, I uh, Working with him broke me down. Every year would kind of break me down. And in 2008, we had an incident in Atlanta, Georgia, where um, 
there was an incident with like the group of guys uh, from the tour and a female server at a restaurant. And I didn't like how they were talking to her. And um, I didn't like what they were trying. Like they, I did, just didn't like that interaction at all. And I said something and there was this thing in my mind where I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, Oh, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Well, and then I'm like, are you, is this how you're going to go out? Like, is it, because I had already, in my mind, I knew I had to leave. Right. How do you leave if you don't have another job? You know? Well, he has a reputation for uh, not being a, a pleasant person, joke thief, etc. So, yeah. So it was like an interesting, it was this thing where I left, I kind of bit the bullet and I made a big scene and I told them that they couldn't talk to that female server like that and I told them to leave her alone and I remember it was like we had already closed so like they had already closed the restaurant we were we had been at the bar we closed the place down um they all thought I was drunk because it's like why am I making the scene and for me I'm like oh no like you guys are so no this is real this yeah, is happening like, right now. No, you guys are dicks. Like, let me tell you why you're dicks. You know? <laughs> let me spell it out. If you didn't yeah. remember what you just said two yeah. minutes ago. So then um, I remember having that moment where I'm like, well, fuck it. This is the thing. This is how I'm leaving. So I went down the row and I told everybody off and oh, told boy. them how I felt. And uh, we were already going on the bus to the airport to fly home. That was in 2008. Um, I flew home. He was doing a show at the Gibson Amphitheater, which used to be a big venue here, but that closed years ago. He called me and asked me to open for him. I went. It was so awkward because apparently that's when people, uh, that's when I found out that people thought I was, I had just gone on a drunken, like drunken, like, like phase or whatever. <laughs> She's lost uh, her marbles. <laughs> and that was the last day I ever spoke to him. And that was in 2000. Wow. And I, and, and the, the comics that I tore, there was a comic I traveled with that I couldn't stand because he was adopting the habits uh, of Mencia and people like the guy. Was this all before Joe Rogan outed him with that big video about his? Uh, it was right story? after. It was like, okay. it, it was during that time. So, there so was a- hindsight, was that kind of resting on you a bit as well? Like, uh, this is toxic environment with him and bad PR. Maybe, maybe it's. Oh no, no, no! For me, I, you know, here's the thing about that. During that time, you have to understand. Like, I try to explain to people, we had MySpace then. We don't have the internet that we had now. When I first met him, I, when I first met him, and he asked me to go on the road. I didn't respond to his material. He just wasn't my style. But all the comics were like, this is a big opportunity, blah, blah, blah. We never knew that he had a reputation of being a thief because back then, stand-up was different. You know, like back in those days, we didn't have the internet that we had now. So like back in those days, you could actually sell out shows doing morning radio shows. You know what I mean? There wasn't this Facebook interaction that there is now. So as Dallas Comics we were getting info that we could get in Dallas back then. So it wasn't until later on that I working with him, that I realized that that's what people thought of him, you know? So it was kind of like this. Once I started learning my interaction with him actually ended because I had problems with how I was being treated um, really shitty by being the only woman on 
on the tour. You and know? adding another woman wouldn't have helped. Like, you, you know, <laughs> then we would have just had a mud fight every night. He would have demanded it. Like, <laughs> All right, I'm going to pivot one more time just because uh, it's getting late. We're going to wrap it up here soon. And I know my kids uh, would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask more about uh, how you got the gig at uh, Disney Pixar as uh, Cruz Ramirez. You know, um, my show got canceled in 2015. And uh, people don't know this, but I was I had been guest hosting on The View because the network, ABC, hadn't promoted my show. And I wanted people to know that my show existed. So I would co-host the view for a week on hiatus weeks when we weren't uh, when the production was off for the show and i started realizing that people really like the people at at the view and abc news they kind of seemed to like me and immediately i thought oh man i think they're gonna want me for the view the day my show did you not want that gig no i did not want that gig. you liked did you like visiting and just being a guest host yeah i did that's where i met whoopi so okay. I became friends with Whoopi and I became friends with like Rosie O'Donnell and uh, um, Nicole Wallace. That was the year that we were all there. Okay. And I, I like kind of popping in and leaving. Mentally, I couldn't handle it because after every episode, my Twitter would just be bombarded with hateful shit. But mentally, I just couldn't. I just could. I, I knew the job wasn't for me. So my show gets canceled. I'm doing uh, a weekend at Fort Lauderdale at the Improv back then. And I get the call that it's canceled. And uh, 10 minutes later, I get a call from ABC offering me the view. And immediately I'm like, uh, no. And basically they're like, oh, she wants more money. No, I don't. (laughs) That was actually my next question. Was it a like... If they had thrown more money at you, would you have taken it? Because I assume you made a good chunk of money um, for Cristela, like enough to the money. Of... The money was really good for the view. Okay. Like it was in, like they, they more than Cristela, I'm assuming, or, or no? Okay, I, I'm and you still say, turned it down. I still turned it down, I, and it was back and forth. I think three times overall. People would, they, like, my reps would come back, are you sure you don't want the view? Like, they did this, they, they're adding this, they're adding this, da, da, da. And I finally... Do you think, uh, again, I'm on the outside here, um, do you think you get pushback from your representation because they see the commission money that they can <laughs> potentially make on that? Well, you know, <laughs> Being an agent, you know, I kind of think about that, like, wait, I can see them going, hey, come on, you should probably try this. Dude, of course. But they're running I- their 10% in their head, when I signed with my agency, I told them, well, first of all, when I signed, uh, my old agent, so Stu had been let go from his agency, right? So I had nowhere to go. And um, I had already booked. I had just booked. Uh, I was I was just about to do all the gigs from the NACA that I booked, all the 100 right. gigs or whatever. WME didn't know that. So I intentionally didn't tell them that I had all this money coming from college gigs and stuff or whatever. Um, so you wouldn't have to give them the 10% or no, whatever. No, because I didn't want them thinking because, you know, what I realized at the old agency was that because I was doing so well in college gigs, they only saw me as a college comic and nothing else. So I could never give them a script to read that I wrote. I could never, they didn't see me as a writer. They didn't see me. They just saw me like I was, the cash cow for college gigs. Right. And um, I wanted to kind of get an agency with that, that saw me as maybe something else. So I told WME when I was signing with them, I'm like, 
I know this sounds weird, but I want you to believe me when I say it. Like, I'm going to say no to a lot of things. I don't do this for the money. I do it because I really love doing this. But I promise you, when I say yes, it's going to be good. You know, and uh, I remember my stand-up agent said, I'm not here. She said, uh, she agreed. And she said, I'm not here to make you money. I'm here to make you a lifelong career. Nice. Well, and, that's a good agent. Yeah. And, 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 and since then, like, they always knew. They always knew that when I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to do it. But they were getting... Don't ask me twice. <laughs> My first answer sticks. Well, yeah. And the last time that they came back with the view offer, I told my agents, like, if I hear about it one more time, like, I, I'm i going to have to start looking for other representation because you're not listening to me. And they and, shut it down. Yeah. And, and, and that was the last I heard of it. People didn't understand. Like, why didn't you want to host the view? Like, what it, it was for me, I'm like, I wasn't ready yet. I wasn't ready for that kind of job. Look, all I knew then, The View told me that I was good at doing talk shows. So now that was a skill that I didn't know I had. Right. So I could use it for something else. I, I'm still, and ultimately something to fall back on later. Yeah. If you needed to. I'm a comic. I like doing stand-up. Like, right. I love doing stand-up, you know? Like, you know? And so um, that day, I told them, like, this is my last, last time I'm saying no. I'm not going to do it. Da-da-da. And then basically they, they obliged. They were, they were like, okay. And they're like, well, what now? You know, basically. And I'm like, I don't know. You know a I, Disney movie. It'll come, it'll come when it comes. Literally a week later, I get a call from my agents and they're like, hey, Pixar wants to know if you want to, uh, to go visit them. And like, that was all I, that was all I knew. And Just I was to visit. Like, yeah, just a visit, just a bit, Chuck, just a visit, right? So I was like, okay. You had no insight, like what project or? None, Chuck, none. So I, I was like, I'm not joking. Part of me thought was, part of me thought like, I guess this is what they do with people in Hollywood. They just at some point everybody gets to go to Pixar. Like I had no idea. Like it made no sense. Take your client to Pixar day. <laughs> like, like, I mean, why why would they want to meet with me? Like why Just would come they want skip to it in. <laughs> I mean seriously. Take it all in, Christella. <laughs> you might not be with us in a year. It's your Willy Wonka day. We all get one. Like it was just like so ridiculous. So ridiculous. Uh, so ridiculous. And, uh, I, I, I I went in, like, they're in Emeryville, which is, like, an hour flight from me. And um, I was like, okay, I'll go. And I really didn't know why. And then um, I got there, and they made me sign a uh, non-disclosure, an NDA, because they were going to give me the real tour of Pixar, where they would, like, oh. me through all this stuff. I, it is so cool. Like, nice. it is, there's, there's rooms in between walls and stuff. Like, that's all I'll say. It's really cool. And... Um, then we get to this conference room and they have all the car stuff out. And then they like, I'm just sitting there and they start telling me the plot of cars three and they start to show me these drawings. And at the end I'm like, okay, well, I wish you luck. <laughs> you know, like, I had no idea what they wanted. And then they were like, we want you to audition for Cruise. 
And I was like, had they had a mock-up yet already of the um, of the actual character? Uh, like, I no, guess without, they had, or they, they just have photos and pictures. They had a wooden base of the car. Um, the car was actually uh, the face is actually modeled after me. So okay. like when we were doing VO, they would actually have a like a camera right to me so that the illustrators could draw the face according to my reactions. So, um, but yeah, I had no idea they were offering me the job. I went into the studio at Pixar. I read the lines. And uh, I want to say two days later, I got offered the role. And then uh, it was actually initially a small part. And then I started telling them stories about my childhood and growing up. And um, the story of Cruz Ramirez in Pixar is my childhood story. So they, I actually had to sign another contract saying that it was okay for them to use my, my, my stories. So that, so and that made more money, I'm sure. It was this thing where I was like, well, you know, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I'm an amusement park ride in many locations. So it, it's this thing where, again, I know it sounds weird, but I think that's kind of what's, all of this is kind of what, what's helped me. Uh, by the way, when I pitched my show, WME did the same thing with me where they're just like, go meet this person. Just tell them your story. Like, it's just so interesting. Like, just tell them. And I didn't know that I was pitching a show. Well, it goes back to what I, did, I said earlier. This is your likability and, and and a good client. I I think that they probably realize what they had with you. Like this this person is genuine, and when she starts talking about her story, I think it comes across as real and not, you know, forced. Yeah, you know, as well, some comedians do. Yeah, ex exactly. And it, it's also that thing where for me, I just I just love what I get to do. That. Uh, I like talking about it, you know, and for me, it's just people don't understand. I never expected any of this, you know? So for me, I didn't even know this was possible. So I always literally go into these situations thinking I could never do anything because yeah. I never expected it. So I go into everything kind of like, this is so cool. Like I go into the, everything with that mentality where I'm like, I can't believe we get to do this, which right. is how I kind of treat a lot of the people that follow me on social media. I'm like, oh, guys, I'm going to show you this. We're going to get to do this. So it seems like, you know, like um, they're all part of it because they are like for me. I, I think that when you're so surprised and also grateful about what's happening and you're living in the moment, there's just, I think it kind of takes the stress away, you know, and there's just, there's no expectation. Right. Well, my mom always said, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And it's it feels true. feels like uh, you're living that life here. So what was the uh, first big expense that you spent with that first uh, residual check from Disney? <laughs> and I assume, do they still pay you every year? How does that work? Yeah. So twice they, a year, you get a just Disney check just rolls in. I get money. For life. <laughs> who needs a retirement plan as long as they keep as long as people keep watching cars I, I'll, I'll do it i don't know and yeah. also like, if there's ever a fourth one i mean i have to be in that one so it's pretty well cool. of course yeah <laughs> but um the first thing i bought <laughs> you can tell me it's gonna be so insane i went to target and bought everything i wanted what do you mean? Like, <laughs> like every like you went down the aisle and just like no, supermarket sweeped it and just put everything. <laughs> what a great show! No, for me, I um, 
I went to women's clothing and I bought clothes that I wanted that were a regular price. <laughs> that's, that's the first awesome. thing I did. That is awesome. <laughs> that is the first thing I did. <laughs> like, that's the first thing I did. I'll take two. Remember, oh, One in each color. <laughs> I'm that person now. I dress like a cartoon character. I'm like, I find a shirt and then I just buy several of that shirt. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, I know we're coming down to the thing here at the end here. And this show is called The Check Drop. You, you know what that is at the end of the your, uh, your set. And you kind of have to start ra- wrapping it up at the end of the at end of the club night. Painful time. That's when people realize how expensive nachos are. <laughs> right. Everybody hates it. <laughs> I figured it was a, a good title for this show. But um, it's also the time where I like to, you know, is, you've already mentioned so many great gigs, so many great things you've done in your career. I mean, what is your favorite so far that you have done that you have put your stamp on and and then followed that up with, obviously, you can plug yourself and what you're doing as of late and upcoming to the world? You know, that's a hard question. I've got to say that, man, you know, I'll tell you that in 2020, right now, I think that the special I did for Netflix in 2016, I find I find it eerie how relevant it still is. And for me, that kind of rem- like it gives it makes me feel like uh, I wrote it honestly, where the truth will always be the truth will always be relevant. So for me, like that's an evolution of, to me, that's an evolution of what I've become now, the lower classy special from 2016. Okay, nice. I, I need to go back and rewatch. I know I watched it. I watch a lot of comedy, as you, you can imagine. So it's hard to keep up. With it. <laughs> <I have to. laughs> so uh, tell everybody where they can find you online and such. And so on Twitter, anything you want to plug? Uh, Insta, Twitter and Instagram. I'm uh, at Christella Nine, just the number nine. Uh, and on uh, Facebook, I'm at Christella Fans. Uh, honestly, what am I? What can I plug? Um, no live shows. Look, I have a uh, the second season of His Dark Materials will come out later on in the year on HBO and BBC. I play the voice of Hester on it, um, so tune into that. And um, trying to think, I have just a you know random look. Wear a mask, everybody. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the only thing I should really promote right now. <laughs> Wear a mask. I love it. Well, Christella, I love you very much. And I you know, love the world loves you. And thank you so much for coming on the check drop. And um, if anybody's out there and needs a stand-up comedian, summitcomedy.com. <laughs> that's the place to go. We can do that for you. All right, Christella. All right, all thank right. you very much. Okay, right. Take care. Bye.